Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified. The podcast where you get a bone, and you get a bone, and you get a bone. Everybody gets a bone! I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. Why did I get stuck with this old toe? It's a mummified penis. Ugh! That was it. That was the sound. One take. I heard in my head as I was writing that cold open and <laughs> agonized for, I will say, about four minutes about how to properly put that into words, into consonants. On, on the subject of mummified penises, um, are oh there- Oh boy, Emily. Are there pebises? There's- that were, There's- Am I going to have to look at a holy pebis? I, I'm not going to show you any pictures of holy pebises. Okay. Um, and I'll explain why. And it's also <laughs> technically only part of a pebis. Uh, anyway. What part of the pe- Nope. No. No. Nope. <laughs> Emily, I promise you, whatever you're thinking, it's worse. I don't know. What I thought was pretty bad, but we'll get there, I guess. Guys, we're gonna do relics today. This has been on our list for a while. It's different than Incorruptible Saints. <laughs> It is different, because this is every time I'm like, should we do an episode on relics? Have we done that before? And Emily's like, no, we haven't. Incorruptible saints is technically different, because, you know, incorruptible saints are generally the whole saint. Well, most of Gen- the saint. Generally, most of the saint. It's a uh, person-shaped. Yeah. Relics are... We'll, we'll get into it. So, uh, <laughs> sources for this, Wikipedia, Britannica, the Catholic Encyclopedia, Ooh. quite... Quite a rousing read. Uh, mm. The Guardian, <laughs> Daily Art Magazine, HistoryCollection.com, and Atlas Obscura. These are good sources. Yeah. We're off to a great start already. So, <laughs> a relic, in the, most, in the most simple of terms, it is an object or an article associated with a historical figure from the past. It's like the baseline definition that we are working with. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a physical part of their being. No. It can just be, and we'll get into it, and just be kind of nearby them, really. Uh, So in Christianity, particularly in Catholicism, and Catholicism is mostly what this episode is going to focus on, because they're the ones that are really big into it, uh, this tends to be the remains of a venerated saint. Uh, But the Catholic Church didn't invent relics, and like I said, it's not also the only religion that has them. Uh, The earliest use of relics, in fact, can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. Uh, oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. So many cities claim to possess the remains of heroes like Orpheus or Theseus, even if they didn't necessarily, like, display them. They yeah. just kind of either hid them away or just, like, claim to have them. But interestingly, the bones considered by Greeks to be relics were sometimes described in these literary sources as being gigantic bones, uh, possibly to, like, just as a way of emphasizing the hero's larger-than-life status. And, of course, you know... Not everybody got to see them, so... Of course, of course. Who knows? Uh, But there are some people who speculate that what they may have actually found were the remains of prehistoric creatures. So, dinosaur bones. Yes, this is what I'm saying. Were the Greek heroes actually dinosaurs? Somebody write me this animated feature film. Jurassic Park 5. (laughs) Hercules. Oh. (laughs) Oh, that's a crossover I would kill for. You get Jeff Goldblum and the little toke... (laughs) Everyone wins. Except Jeff Goldblum, who's going to be very cold. (laughs) Uh, So relics have also been part of Buddhist practice from some of its earliest days. Um, Buddhist literature, particularly the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, 
states that the cremated remains of the Buddha were distributed equally among eight Indian tribes who built commemorative mounds over them. Uh, Kept separate from, you know, this lovely gift Uh (laughs) were uh seven bones, four teeth, two collarbones, and the frontal bone. I don't know what I think of the skull, maybe? Frontal bone. Uh, Yeah. So these are still objects of widespread devotion today. They're known as Sarira, I think is how that's pronounced. Uh, the famous, the most famous of these, I should say, is the left canine tooth, which is kept at the appropriately named Temple of the Tooth in Kandy, Sri Lanka. You know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Tooth was an underrated classic. I know. Why don't we talk more about Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Tooth? And, you know, I hear they're making it into a ride at Euro Disney. <laughs> Uh, So, while there are no official sanctions for the use of relics in Islam, there are Muslim relics, uh, the most well-known of which are the Sacred Trusts, a collection of more than 600 pieces kept in the Topkapi Palace Museum in Istanbul. Uh, So, these treasures are purported to include the footprint of the Prophet Muhammad, as well as hair from his beard, as well as various possessions of other, you know, just important figures and prophets like Moses' staff and the Sword of David. Beard hair is just... Yeah. Yeah, the, no, no thanks. There's also a cloak believed to have been uh, to have belonged to Muhammad that is kept in the central mosque in Kandahar, Afghanistan. It is kept locked away, locked away and only taken out in times of great crisis. Damn. So I'm assuming it's just out right now. <laughs> it's been out since about 2001. Yeah, they are flying it like a flag. <laughs> okay, so. The earliest veneration of relics in the Christian tradition can be placed back, traced back to the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, who <laughs> yep. I'm pretty sure is a Pokemon. It's actually what you call a group of Magikarps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not a school. <laughs> and they're all in love with each other. Oh, so cute. Uh, so, according to the letter, uh, a letter by the inhabitants of Smyrna around the year 156, after St. Polycarp had been burned at the stake, the people of Smyrna, quote, took up his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones and finer than refined gold, and laid them in a suitable place, where the Lord will permit us to gather ourselves together as we are able, in gladness and joy, and to celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. This was before they invented periods. <laughs> <laughs> that was all one sentence. Uh, in the early days of the church, the remains of martyrs were held in such high regard that merely unwrapping or touching the body was considered straight up sacrilegious, like the kind of thing that could only be rectified by prayer and fasting. Uh, so it um, then most remains, of course, would be left alone in their places of rest, typically in you know cemeteries or inside the Roman catacombs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and instead of transporting the saint to an existing place of worship, churches and shrines would be built over the remains, such as how St. Peter's Basilica is supposedly built over the remains of its namesake. I forgot about that. Yeah. And I say supposedly because... Who knows? We'll get into it. <laughs> the authenticity of relics is almost impossible <laughs> to verify. There's one thing that always just kind of bugged me, is that Catholics make a big deal out of, like, oh, you can't get cremated and all of that, because yeah, you have to use your body again when the end times come. You are just scattering pieces of saints across the globe (laughs) you don't think saint cecilia is gonna want her fucking toe like she's gonna be unbalanced it's gonna be very unpleasant to wait for all of her to come together again Mm. do you think it's like like in a movie where everything just starts to vibrate and then it like (laughs) forms itself again that's exactly what i'm picturing okay and it's not a pretty picture no it's not it's (laughs) 
so in fact, for a while, it was actually pretty popular to be buried in a funerary. Like they would build funerary halls over these martyrs' graves, and it was very popular to be buried inside of those. So it's likely believed that, like, it was likely believed at the time that on Resurrection Day, the souls of the martyrs would bring along the souls of anywhere anyone buried nearby them. So you'd essentially get like a plus one into heaven. <laughs> Uh, but it is a little fuzzy as to when exactly it became okay to start dividing up and redistributing body parts. So as previously mentioned. <laughs> yeah, uh, as we do today. Uh, so during the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, it was decreed that every altar should contain a relic. Um, though by this time, the concept of relics had expanded to include objects associated with the saints and martyrs, such as filings from the chains that held St. Peter are like teeny tiny slivers of the true cross. I was truly concerned you were going to say filings of St. Peter's nails. <laughs> Not quite. Not yet. <laughs> so uh, there's also a practice. There was also this practice of placing boxes containing silk and cloth alongside the remains of an apostle or a saint. And after a time, you could treat those items like known as experendia as relics by virtue of proximity. So like, so they thing, just have to get the smell in them. Yeah. You just got to be there a while to absorb the essence of the saint, I guess. Gross. (laughs) So, by the Middle Ages, tales of miracles and other divine intervention attributed to various relics made dealing in relics very popular and I'm sure very lucrative. Uh, Not only within the church, but like among royalty and nobility and eventually the merchant class. And of course, because this was the Middle Ages... And no one had any real way of determining a relic's authenticity. Here we start to see counterfeits. Uh, So pieces of the true cross were particularly susceptible to this, probably because it's not too hard to fake wood. wood. (laughs) John Calvin famously remarked that there were enough pieces of the true cross to build an entire ship. Uh, the problem was by the time John Calvin came around, there were so many relics in so many churches that it was impossible to really distinguish what was authentic and what was fake. And both had been venerated as true relics for so long that you couldn't really separate one from the other anymore. Yeah, I I guess it's not like with art where you can just have a professional come in and like take a look at it. Yeah. So in his treatise on relics in 1543, Calvin describes saints with two or three bodies or extra limbs and heads. Uh, And while it should be noted that Calvin was a Protestant reformer and staunchly anti-Catholic, and so this was the frame he was writing from, Ah. he's not entirely wrong here. No. I'll get to examples of this in a bit. (laughs) But for what it was worth, there was actually a study done in 1870, of all years, uh, that found that altogether the claimed relics of the true cross weighed in at less than five pounds. So, like, he was maybe exaggerating a bit, too. Like, it's, both things can be true. He sounds like Carl Sagan, where it's like, <laughs> I know you're right, but do you have to be such a dick about it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> eventually, the Catholic Church did begin to crack down. Uh, canon law eventually required relics to be authenticated if they were publicly venerated, and if so, sealed in a reliquary, uh, and also accompanied by a certificate of authentic- authentication, you know, like the movie props you buy off of Amazon. Yes, all of those movie props I purchased off of Amazon. Uh, granted, this doesn't really solve the problem of how you're supposed to objectively authenticate a relic. Like, even now, in the days of DNA, t- like, who who are you going to compare it to? We have no way of knowing anymore. Yeah, I, ha- I have had uh, a rosary that quote-unquote, had a, a chip of bone from one of the old lady saints. I 
don't know if that's real or not. Yeah, those old ladies. Yeah, it could be the chip. No, it's like Cecilia or Lucy or Agnes, one of them. It could be the bone of anybody. It could be the bone of an animal. It could be something that looks vaguely like a bone. It could just not be a bone. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we're yeah, at this point, we're just going give to give it to them. Like authenticated relics. The Catholic Church treat, treats them as true. So yeah, my godmother brought it back from Rome. So I assume it's it's at least a Roman bone. <laughs> it, it's in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's been in the continent. It's been on the same continent. <laughs> it counts. So today, the Catholic Church divides relics into three classes. So we have first class relics, and these are items directly associated with the events of Christ's life, i.e. the cross, um, or the physical remains of a saint. They're bo- like if the body part is more significant to that saint's life than the other than others, it's more prized. So if you have Agatha's like, tit, like that's the best that would one be to very have. important yeah okay. or also like <laughs> the example i saw was like if a saint traveled a lot the bones of his feet are oh, going right. to That's be more a- important than like his teeth slightly more important than what yeah. i said but <laughs> sometimes related to sometimes related more to their works and less to you know i mean that's uh, what she's depicted as yeah. having so or not i having. will say the um this one this is like a relic that has been lost but like saint agatha's breasts were treated as a relic for some point, or at least some object that was (laughs) pretended (laughs) that they said were St. Agatha's breasts that's been lost since then. But there's also like, I can't remember her name, but there was some like St. Elizabeth or whatever, who was like, people kind of expected that she would be a saint. So after she died, like people just like went and just started taking things from her body, like anticipating that these would be used as relic, just terrible. Terrible. Let a bitch rest for like 10 minutes. (laughs) So second class relics are items that the saint owned or used, such as a crucifix or a rosary, or in some cases, like an item of clothing they may have had. Uh, And then there's third class relics. And these are similar to like the ex-brandia, which are just objects that have come into contact with a first or second class relic. Typically like small pieces of cloth or like oil. Yeah, that's the the story I was waiting to to tell you is that um, when I was... 10, 11, somewhere in that range, um, we took a, they called it a pilgrimage, it was a field trip, Yeah, uh, to a convent somewhere in Oregon where one of the St. Teresa's body was, like, they were taking her on tour. As you do. Yeah, and the different stops were convents, and, like, they gave us each a little, like, piece of cloth that we could touch to the glass case where her body was. Oh, thank God it was just to the glass case or not, and not like, here, children. She wasn't just open. Like, granted, I did attend- (laughs) Don't poke this corpse. Granted, for school, I was forced to attend an open casket funeral for a parishioner that I didn't know, but we never got to see any of the cool bodies. (laughs) I don't know what happened to my little piece of cloth. I imagine thrown away during some move or (laughs) Yeah, I don't think my mom kept it. It's not like with my American girl dolls. It's not there along with your certificate of authentication. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get one of those filled out by the nuns. Uh, so the veneration of relics is less popular in other Christian denominations like the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're more into kind of icons and things like that. Though they do sew relics into, I think they're called antimensions or basically altar cloths. Okay. Um, as part of the, the consecration of a new church. So similar to how Catholics do it, like you want to make sure there's a relic. Somewhere in it. In the altar of the church, yeah. Um, Protestant mean Protestants, meanwhile, are really not into relics at all, which is not surprising, considering the it's practice weird. of veneration was kind of their one original beefs. <laughs> I mean, 
They got a point. <laughs> it's weird. It's a body part. So, <laughs> which brings me to my next point, that even today, and I ran into so much of this, most Catholic sources um, you'll see on relics will be very quick to draw a line between, like, the worship of relics and the veneration of relics. And in fact, this is also true of, like, Buddhism and Islam as well. Like, everyone's very careful to say they're not worshiping these things. Um, no, it's it's more like a, well, that's cool, as opposed to praying to it. <laughs> yeah. They're not trying to elevate the saints and martyrs to the same level of God, but kind of honoring the remains as you would the treasured personal effects of a relative, or at least this is according to St. Thomas Aquinas. But they are there to represent the saints, and in the same way Catholics will pray to particular saints for intercession, it's less about treating that person as worthy of worship and more about asking them to put in a good word to Jesus for you. Yeah, I mean, it's just a way to feel feel closer to the person that you're, the entity mm-hmm. that you're you're praying to. Now that we've done the reading, we've gotten through the history, we can get to the fun part of this episode, which is just a bunch of weird relics. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that you have to make the slideshow for the Instagram. I'm delighted, honestly, by the whole thing. Okay, so I'm going to send you a picture. Great. These are the things I don't consider when I'm like, yeah, do that episode. All right, uh, this is coming in through texty text. Uh, so the first one we're going to discuss are the fingernails and hair clippings of St. Clair. God damn it! <sighs> St. Clair, who lived from uh, 1194 to 1253 in Assisi, where she was mentored by the more famous St. Francis, uh, she was uh, she was inspired by his teachings, and so she renounced her family's wealth and founded her own order of nuns, the Poor Clares, uh, to be based on the ideals of extreme poverty and contemplation. Did she call them that, or is that a name they got? Yes. All right. I think that's what they were called contemporaneously. Okay, because if you, like, start up a thing... Because that's like... The poor me's. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a band name. It sounds like she's going to open for Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as part of this decision to fully devote her life to God, she cut off her long, beautiful hair, which someone apparently gathered up and put into storage until Claire's eventual canonization. Well, to be fair, she probably cut her hair a couple of times. This is also probably true. <laughs> It's also like, like, she did have followers, so it is reasonable to assume that they might have, like, seen her cut her hair and did actually make the effort to gather it up. Now, um, <laughs> not to blow up anybody's spot, um, I am 99% sure that in the beginnings to the midpoint of, uh, Om Shinrikyo, um, the, the guy that led that, Shoko Asahara, was, like, selling his bathwater and, like, hair and stuff um, uh, to his gross. followers. And I just feel like there is a fine line <laughs> between being a worshiper and being a member of a cult of a lady. Yeah, that's not necessarily wrong. <laughs> so, uh, Claire's golden locks can now be seen at the Church of St. Clair in Assisi alongside a rock crystal flask containing her fingernail clippings. That's supposed to be blonde? Yeah, I think so. It's It probably has faded in the, you know, last thousand years or so. Yeah, I don't really know how hair ages, so that could very well be. Um, I will say I can find absolutely no details on how or why or when they decided to clip her fingernails and then put them on display. They might have done it um, but to prepare the body for burial. Maybe. But you can go see them. Cool. <laughs> so, Actually, I do really want to see something. Not that specifically, but something. So our next relic is the blood of St. Januarius, 
And Saint Januarius is a four, is a fourth century martyr and patron of patron saint of Naples. So legend holds that Januarius, who is an early bishop of the city, was caught hiding his fellow Christians from the persecution of the emperor. Uh, and originally condemned to be thrown to wild bears, his sentence was later changed to beheading, either because the bears refused to eat him or the Romans were afraid that he would make us or the public would make a scene. It's also really hard to source bears. Yeah, I can imagine it's easy. Uh, so we honestly don't know because he lived in the fourth century and it sounds like documentation is pretty sparse. Like you go to his Wikipedia page and it's like the legend of St. January. Like, I don't know if we have any actual stuff on this guy. Regardless, St. Januarius is most famous today for the relic that he supposedly left behind, uh, which is a reliquary containing his dried blood that by some miracle reliquifies on important dates. No, no, it does not. I don't know, Emily. It might. If you get to be like this about aliens, I get to be like this about miracles. <laughs> so the first date is the Feast of St. Januarius, which is um, on September 19th to commemorate his martyrdom. That, um, I just feel like maybe it should be moved to January. To January. <laughs> yeah, I know. That bothered me, too. But, I mean, he didn't get to pick what month he died in, I guess. Uh, They also will bring it out on December 16th, which is a day that celebrates the Naples Archdiocese. And then also the first Saturday before the first Sunday of May to commemorate the reunification of his relics. So wouldn't that be a specific day and not like an Easter schedule? I guess not. They might not have a specific date for it, or maybe they just didn't set. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's like President's Day where like we can't remember this date every year. So yeah. Uh, so the blood of St. Januarius is also said to spontaneously liquefy for other important events, typically when a pope shows up to visit. Um, what's more interesting are the times when the pope, when the blood doesn't liquefy. Oh, oh, oh I'd hate to be that pope. <laughs> so it didn't for either Pope John Paul II or Benedict XVI. Well, that's because Benedict XVI was literally Emperor Palpatine. But <laughs> uh, I guess it half liquefied for Pope Francis. I don't know if that means like it, it turned into a powder, kind of got kind of gummy, or yeah. it is like the kind of like they keep it in like a big necklace. Essentially, <laughs> this is disgusting. It's kind of like a glass globe, and in the globe are two little like um, little jars. Do essentially, you have a so maybe of this? one of them did. Yeah, I can find one. I can also Google it like an adult. So maybe like one of them liquefied, and the other one didn't. Oh, sorry, it's not a necklace. It's just like a staff, but uh. Those are two very different items, dude. Yeah. So who who's knows? in charge of determining what's liquid or not? I don't know. And it also like they said, like, sometimes like uh, it'll take a couple of days for the blood. Like, it doesn't always do it on the day. Sometimes it's like a couple of days later, which like, hmm, whatever. If you want to celebrate, if you want to have a party because of this blood, go for it, I guess. Uh, so if the blood does fail to liquefy on a feast day, it is typically seen as some kind of foreboding omen. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, it remained solid in September 1939, just after the beginning of World War II, and again in September 1940 when the war came to Italy. Uh, it also failed to liquefy in September 1973, right before a cholera epidemic, and again in 1980, one month before a major earthquake. Are you implying that this is magic fortune-telling blood? It did liquefy just fine in 2020. Uh, so I don't know if I really trust this blood's prophetic abilities. <laughs> I want to know how they do it. Is it like those baby bottles you used to get when you were a kid where you turn it upside down and it would drain? Like, what is... <laughs> you know, considering all the different angles that they hold this thing at in the pictures, I... 
Oh, it is a necklace. See, it is a necklace. This guy is wearing it as a necklace. I'm sure it's like a necklace that can also be like locked into a, a staff. Yeah. Anyway. Ooh, scientists replicate, quote, miracle. Oh, yeah. Well, that'll do it. Thixotropy. Property of certain gels that causes them to become liquid when handled, but solidify again when left undisturbed. Oh, so they did a science to it. Oh, yeah. There's a special recipe. I'll send you the article later. Great. All right. Are you ready for another weird relic? (sighs) Weirder than magic blood? Well, how about the Virgin Mary's breast milk? God damn it, Sarah. (laughs) Yep. So the Chapel of the Milk Grotto in Bethlehem. No. No. Built on the site of a former church, which has been the center of Christian pilgrimage since the Byzantine era. So of the original church, the only thing that really remains is a mosaic floor. Uh, But Christian tradition maintains that the grotto was once a cave where the Holy Family found refuge during the massacre of the innocents. As she was breastfeeding little baby Jesus, some of Mary's milk spilled onto the ground and changed the color of the floor to white. No. Because that's not something that just naturally occurs anywhere, Emily. It's only... When the when Jesus's mom spills breast milk, I feel like that's difficult. You know what? Keep going. I mm. it's going to get worse. This is actually just terrible. It always gets worse. <laughs> the grotto is a popular shrine amongst couples struggling with infertility. But the worst <sighs> part of all of this is that they actually sell a limestone powder made from the grotto stone that's meant to be like dissolved in a drink, and you drink it as a cure for infertility. And I hate it. Like not j- they're not just like operating this place as a shrine but they are also like profiting off of infertile couples in their like grief i want to punch something someone a priest probably (laughs) it's the worst i hate it well we're gonna move on to something more fun and this one has a picture oh good that's all we're gonna do there yeah that's all i've got on that one some of these are a little short nope that's fine that's fine with me (laughs) so incoming emily this is the tongue and jaw of saint anthony oh great Jesus H. Christ. (laughs) Yeah, this one's going in the slideshow. This one might be the slideshow cover. It looks like a character from Beetlejuice. It's it's some Guillermo del Toro shit. (laughs) I'm not unconvinced this wasn't already in Hellboy. (laughs) So St. Anthony of Padua was a Franciscan friar who lived from 1195 to 1231, and he was hailed for his powerful sermons, expert knowledge of the scripture, and his devotion to the poor and sick. He died not as a martyr, but of edema, and proved to be so popular that he was canonized by Pope Gregory IX less than a year after his death. So they really fast-tracked that. Isn't edema when your legs swell up? Am I thinking of something else? That sounds about right. Also called dropsy? Edema. Edema means swelling caused by fluid in your blood's tissues. It usually occurs in the feet, ankles, and legs, but can involve your entire body. Uh, Causes of edema include eating too much salt and sunburn. Yes, it's called dropsy also. Okay. Well, I don't know why I knew that, but. (laughs) So his body wouldn't be exhumed, or his body would be exhumed just 30 years after his death. And to everybody's shock, St. Anthony's tongue hadn't decomposed. And in fact, was noted to be glistening as if it were still part of a live body. Now, maybe he just had a salt heavy diet and it just kind of pickled. Yeah. Just to say, all this was notable because, you know, he was such a great public speaker. So that's why his tongue Uh was preserved, Uh apparently. Uh, Today, you can see his lower jaw and tongue on display in the Basilica in Padua that bears his name. And it's terrible. And I hate it. Yeah, no, it looks awful. (laughs) They've got, for those of you who can't access Instagram right this second, it's got like, 
it's like shaped to be like a headdress and a head, but it's just like a jaw. There's like this void in the middle where it's just his jaw and then like two little, I don't know what those are. If they're holding the tongue in, it's terrible. Yeah, I think it's the, it's, it's the little like white whatever those are in there that look like eyes that really just put it over the top for me. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a face and it, it haunts me in the dream times. It's awful. <laughs> Hate this. So a little more uh, put together, I will say, is the head of St. Catherine of Siena. You oh, should no. also be seeing the picture of this very soon. Oh, God. <laughs> so speaking of things that are upsetting, <laughs> you can see the full severed head of St. Catherine in the church of San-, San Domenico in Siena. Let the bitch rest. St. <laughs> Catherine, who lived from 1347 to 1380, was most famous for her mystical visions and for receiving the stigmata, which, uh, for those of you who, again, not Catholic, Catholic. school, uh, the appearance of wounds on the locations of the bodies corresponding to the crucifixion wounds of Jesus Christ. So, you know, your wrists and the forehead and all that. Uh, so, though Catherine died of natural causes, she is considered a martyr due to the pain she suffered during the stigmata. Um, and while she died outside of Rome, her head was stolen and brought back to Siena, and that's where it remains today. Why didn't they take it back? <laughs> so, as the legend goes, when the thieves who were caught in the process of stealing Catherine's body, uh, her remains turned into hundreds of rose petals, only to transform back into a head after they were set free. Uh, and yeah, it remains on display in about as good a shape as can be expected from a head that was embalmed in the 14th century. It's, um... She's looking okay. It's very tan. It's... She could use some moisturizer. Uh, that's... Yep. And maybe some dentures. <laughs> yes, these are the only things. Maybe some <laughs> eyes while we're touching her up. Uh, yeah. While we're at it. You'll be relieved to know that's the last picture I have, because, uh... A lot of these relics that we're going to talk to next are lost relics. Talk to. Hmm. Or talk about next. (laughs) (laughs) You don't just talk to your piece of cloth that you touch to the coffin? You know, I would if I knew where it was. (laughs) Our next relics are the relics of the holy diaper. Sarah. (laughs) The cathedrals in Dubrovnik, Croatia, and Aachen, Germany, proudly display what they claim to be Jesus' diapers. Uh, they, They are more commonly and politely described as swaddling clothes oh my god that is what that means (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah yeah uh so while akan only brings their reliquary out every seven years dubrovnik keeps them regularly displayed in their treasury of relics i don't have any more information about this but i mean you can go see jesus's diapers if you'd like if you'd like will you be making a pilgrimage um to dubrovnik maybe someday maybe not to see the diapers though while we're on the subject. Oh, well. Uh, Jesus's foreskin is floating around out there somewhere. You know, I was going to make a joke about it being like Mary's bra or Joseph's jockstrap, but this is worse. You came up with something worse. Yep, you're welcome. So Jesus, just like any other boy being raised in the Jewish faith, would have been circumcised on the eighth day following his birth. W- weren't they busy hiding from a mass murder on the... Eh, whatever, never mind. Well, you still make time for, you know, those important milestones in your baby's life. Was one of the wise men a moil? <laughs> uh, so accordingly, many churches in France and Italy still celebrate the Feast of the Circumcision of Christ on, yeah. fittingly, January 1st every year. Yeah, we used to do that at 
That's cool. <laughs> you, so, you never really think about what it's about when you're a kid, and then no. you're a grown up, and you hear it, and you're like, oh, wow, we huh. were celebrating Jesus getting his dick altered. Great. Great. Glad I went to Mass. <laughs> so as Jesus did fully ascend into heaven, as we all know from reading the Bible, uh, <laughs> it just makes logical sense that the only piece of his body that would remain here on Earth would probably be his foreskin. And therefore, it would probably be like a gold tier level relic. It's great. If you imagine that, like, circumcision wasn't a thing, but, like, he ascended into heaven and from the spot where he (laughs) rose. (laughs) Like, it just kind of popped off on his way up. Yeah. Like, he just, he was like, I should leave something. (laughs) I have to just live with this image in my head now, Emily. (laughs) Of this, like, beautiful ascension into heaven and then the smoke clears and Peter's like, what is (laughs) Hey, what's what is that? Is that? Is that? It looks like. Hey, Paul, go touch it. <laughs> you do it. <laughs> you were his favorite. Where's Judas? <laughs> Get him to do it. Oh boy. So <laughs> I can't put this any better than Wikipedia does. So I'm just going to quote Wikipedia. At various points in history, a number of churches in Europe have claimed to possess Jesus' foreskin, sometimes at the same time. Various miraculous powers have been ascribed to it. It's kind of like Rasputin's dick. Yeah. So, (laughs) foreskin relics predictably began popping up in Europe during the Middle Ages. Uh, Supposedly, Charlemagne received one from an angel (laughs) in the year 800, and then he gifted it to Pope Leo III as as a way of saying, hey... Thanks for crowning me emperor. I mean, that is how you say thank you. And we know this one is the real deal because its authenticity was confirmed years later by a vision um, of St. Bridget in Sweden. She had a vision that confirmed that this relic was, in fact, Jesus's holy foreskin. Confirmed? (laughs) Confirmed, yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, most of these relics were lost or destroyed during the Reformation or like the French Revolution. (laughs) Yeah, some turbulent times. Uh, the last sighting of a holy prepu- prepuce, prepuce? I, that's the official word for it, and I couldn't tell you how to pronounce it, uh, sure. was in the village of Calcutta, Italy, where it was paraded through the streets to celebrate the Feast of the Circumcision in 18- 1983. Uh, soon thereafter, the jewel-encrusted reliquary was stolen by thieves. Uh, there are a number of wild theories as to the fate of the, ho- of the last holy foreskin. Uh, some blame neo-Nazis. Others say the priest just kind of sold it to a relic dealer in Turin. Uh, And then others claim it was stolen by Satanists to use in their unspeakable occult rites. And, you know, frankly, I'm on Team Satanists. I would prefer that be the one. Um, (laughs) I don't know. But also the idea of, I guess you said neo-Nazis, so it wouldn't have been like a bunch of Nazis presenting it to Hitler, which would be... Very funny. I feel like Hitler probably asked about it, though, right? Oh, yeah. No, the Nazis were huge nerds like that. I think that would be very important to them. Someday, someday, I will get into the Nazis and the occult, but... Someday. It's going to be a lot of research <laughs> that I don't really want to do. Uh, so our last relics, or I should say rel... Yeah, relics, plural. I started making a joke and then said the wrong word. Uh, are the heads... Of St. John the Baptist. Heads. Heads. Multiple. What is he, like a circus pig? Uh, So St. John the Baptist is a major religious figure in Christianity, most famous for, you know, baptizing Jesus Christ, hence the whole name. And also, like, he did a lot of other baptizing, too, but that was kind of the big one. Yeah, Jesus just kind of interrupted his big 
baptisms, like, ahead of the line, please. I'm the Lord. (laughs) So according to the New Testament, uh, John was beheaded by Herod Antipas sometime between 28 and 36 CE, either as like a whole fuck you for criticizing his recent divorce and subsequent marriage, or because his stepdaughter Salome asked him nicely. She did a little dance and then asked him. I mean, it could have been both. This was very long time ago. Is this a different Herod than Iscariot? The I think it's the same Judas Iscariot. I think is what you're oh, thinking of, right? Um, I think it's that same guy, the one who did like the the baby murder. Was, oh, he found out about Jesus and did all the baby murder. I think it's the same guy. It would have been about the same time. Why but, did he do all the baby murder? Because Jesus was gonna make him not king. I don't know. Look, my my catechism is pretty fuzzy, admittedly. I'm trying to think, like, there's another story that's fictional where that, like, element comes into play and it's very similar and I can't... Moses. No, I mean, that's also fictional, but... (laughs) Boy, I'm making some pretty bold pronouncements here. (laughs) No, like some Lord of the Ringsy style thing Uh, that I can't remember right now. Oh! Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense that that would be an aspect to that story. I don't know why you would say that. So today, two Catholic churches, a mosque, and a museum all lay claim to John's head. So four places? Four places. Four heads. There are four heads floating out. Well, three heads. I hope they're not floating around. That's a cause for a different (laughs) kind of concern. So Amiens Cathedral in France is said to have received their head in 1206 after it had been purchased in Constantinople. Uh, It's Istanbul. Now Istanbul. Not Constantinople. That's nobody's business but the Turks, Sarah. We shouldn't be talking about it. (laughs) The reliquary that had originally held the head was destroyed during the French Revolution because they were, you know, very anti-Catholic church for probably good reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But today the cathedral does display a recreation made in 1876 by a parish jeweler. So the head isn't really there anymore, but, you know, it had been apparently maybe. The story remains. Yes. Uh, so the Basilica of St. Sylvester I was given their head of St. John the Baptist after it was brought to Rome by Greek monks. Uh, more likely than not, it seems that the head is probably belongs to another local martyr, also probably by the name of John, because there were a lot of those. Uh, and the head itself was probably just like borrowed from the nearby catacombs. So they probably just went out and picked out a skull and borrowed. called it yeah. a day. <laughs> So I'm going to say this is the more commonly accepted resting place of John the Baptist by both Christians and Muslims is the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, Syria, um, which is also known as the Great Mosque of Damascus. It is the fourth holiest site in Islam, um, so very important to Muslims, but also to Christians because of St. John. And it was also built on a previous basilica dedicated to St. It's a whole thing. It's almost like we have some stuff in common, and it's yeah. not really worth all of the... You would whatever. think so. Yeah. So in recent years, the relic has been displayed inside a shrine dedicated to John, though it is kept wrapped in cloth rather than exposed to the elements, which probably is a good idea. It could be anything in there, though. They could just have a basketball wrapped up. (laughs) Pope John Paul II visited the mosque in 2001 to visit the relics, which is why I say this is probably like commonly accepted because the Catholic Church has recognized this as the actual relic. Um, And this was... Well, yeah, and the Pope doesn't just get up and go for nothing. Yeah. So this was actually the first time a Pope ever paid a visit to a mosque. So, oh. yeah, it only took 2,000 years. <laughs> the mosque itself suffered significant damage in the Syrian civil war. It's still standing, but I wasn't able to find anything about the fate of, you know, the head or any other relics. Yeah, probably the last thing on a lot of people's minds. 
Yeah. So the final alleged head of St. John the Baptist resides in the Residence Museum in Munich, Germany. Uh, It turns out Munich has more relics of saints than any city outside Rome. This was because Bavaria remained staunchly Catholic despite the rising tide of the Protestant Reformation. So the Pope more or less just kind of made it rain relics. That's a very disturbing (laughs) mental image. Yeah, enjoy that one. Also, I was going to assume it was because the Nazis stole a bunch of them, but... Surprisingly, no. I'm glad I'm wrong. These are legitimately gifted relics of dubious authenticity. (laughs) So in 1557, Duke Wilhelm V, great-great-something or other of your friend and mine, Mad King Ludwig, was officially granted the right to collect relics by the Pope. Most of these are assumed to be what they call catacomb saints. So because... The Protestant Reformation is happening, and Catholic churches are facing a lot of incidents, I will say, where basically mobs or crowds of, like, Protestant supporters will come in and kind of just, like, destroy all the icons and, like, the fancy stuff in the Catholic churches. Because they're, you know, generally against these type of things. Uh, So in response, the Vatican ordered thousands of skeletons to be exhumed from the catacombs beneath the city of Rome. Uh, install, in, installed as saintly relics. Some may have been early Christian martyrs just by virtue of where they're buried, but is it's pretty unlikely any of the remains belong to actual saints. Uh, <sighs> regardless, Wilhelm, in his Wittelsbach sentence, treated these items as the holiest of relics, housing them in their opulent private chapel, literally called the Rich Chapel. Today, the collection remains on display in the Residence Museum, uh, including the head of St. John the Baptist, which is wrapped in a bejeweled cloth. So none of them are out to, like, look at? No. Um, the the one in uh, Italy might. Oh, okay. I don't have a picture handy. I looked one up. But yeah, most of them are, like, covered in some sort of, like, decorative I mean, I guess when the alternate is just a disembodied head, which we have seen already. Yeah, um, I think you kind of want to, like, dress it up. Like, it's just skulls at this point. It's not, like, there's no skin left. I doubt it. So it's probably just, you know, maybe dressing it up and making it look extra fancy. Putting a nice hat on it. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe a little crown, a little tiara. Ooh! That would be tasteful. Tiara is very tasteful. Maybe one of those little tiny ones with, like, the comb in it that you just kind of, like, set on the back of your head. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. That's relics, folks. Um, So, refresh my memory. It's traditional for Catholic churches to have a relic in the altar. Yes? Yeah. That's my understanding is that's usually where they're kept. And, you know, relics could be... There could be very... It's not necessarily always bones, I will say. Yeah, I wonder how you source those. Is there, like, a website? Do you, like, make a call? What if you got to get them from the church? That's unclear. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could technically call, like, the head of your archdiocese, and then they can make a call to, like, the regional manager. Mm-hmm. And then... It- I also don't think there are very many... Well, at least not in the United States. I'm probably... In Latin America, probably, for, like, new churches being built. Like, maybe new churches or new parishes being established... Versus just, like, someone builds a new church and then moves everything over, but... Yeah, I'm unclear because, like, the church that I used to go to was built new, like, when I was attending it. Because it used to be, like, a mm-hmm. super tiny thing, and then they built, like, a like a church. Like, a capital C church. <laughs> but I don't remember hearing, like, whose bone we got, or if it was a bone. 
Yeah, they don't really publicize that or really talk about it. Like, I think you would. Like, that would be one of my main selling points. It's like, there is a piece of St. Luke in there. <laughs> I think you want to you know, brag about that just a little bit. Yeah, and I wonder if it's like, maybe you do have to like contact people because I don't know if you're paying for this because I don't think you're technically allowed to buy and sell body parts. Yeah, I don't think there is. I mean, there was a market for it back in the Middle Ages, but I don't think that's a thing anymore. I'm guessing they have to be like... Well, yeah, there there were no laws. Yeah, I'm guessing, guessing they have to be like officially sanctioned by the Here, Catholic Church. Go. How to get a saint's license plate. Okay. <laughs> relic. The easiest way to obtain a relic is by touching a possession of your own to a first, second, or third class relic. Go fuck yourself. You already know this. Um, trading or selling relics is uh, forbidden by the Catholic Church. That's probably for the best. Council decreed that every altar should contain a relic. Oh, here we go. This is from a website called HawaiiCatholicHerald.com. Okay. So th- this is like an ask a priest thing from a, a church in Honolulu. Okay. Um, basically, the question is, how may I obtain a first-class relic? So, primer on the relics, which you already went over, venerated. The largest collection of relics belongs to the Vatican and is kept at a convent adjacent to the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. Practice of making relics generally available to the public, particularly first-class relics, ended about 20 years ago at the insistence of the Vatican. Probably for the best. Here we go. Today, you can apply to the Vatican for a specific relic only with a letter of permission from your bishop and only if the relic will be used for a church altar or other public pur- purpose. The private ownership, especially of first-class relics, is highly discouraged since it is seen as limiting the evangelizing effect of the saint's memory. Yeah, that's fair. Occasionally, second- or third-class relics can be obtained by contacting the religious order or shrine of a particular saint. The National Shrine of St. Rita of Cascia uh, is in Philadelphia, and the Shrine of St. John Mary Vianney is in France. If these shrines are unable to provide you with relics, they can at least offer you a devotional material on the saints and information about their lives. Oh, God. The Church's Code of Canon Laws says specifically and strongly in number 1190 that, quote, it is absolutely forbidden to sell sacred relics, unquote. When relics are obtained, there is often a charge for the metal container encasing the relic and for mailing costs, but not for the relic itself. That feels like a loophole. The next question in this uh, column is, why do priests exit mass so fast? (laughs) Probably because they got to get to the three other churches they're saying mass at that day. Or they drank too much wine during communion and they have to go to the little (laughs) bishop's room. Um, So it's kind of like selling haunted artifacts on eBay where you're not buying the ghost, you're buying the doll that the ghost is in. Okay. Basically the same thing. The fact that the church had to come out and be like, dude, don't sell body parts, please. Please stop. Well, that was very illuminating and horrifying. Yes, you're welcome. We'll post some pictures. They will be gruesome. You're welcome. I gave you ice cream and you sent me a picture of a tongue. (laughs) Spoilers. Oh, yeah, that's for next week. (laughs) All right, guys. Um, If you have pictures of a relic or you're somehow in possession of a relic, you want to sell us a first class relic or you have acquired a relic to put in a church that you were a member of please uh contact us on twitter at afternoonified instagram and afternoonified um get afternoonified.com where you can also buy merch and all of that fun stuff um we also have an email address afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com 
And remember to rate, subscribe, review, and all that fun stuff. And uh, hold on to your butts for a supersized mini next week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this episode was short, but you know what? We'll make up for it next week. We split the difference. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. We love you. I'm going to need you all to roll plus charm to do the ad. That's a five. I got a ten. Eight. All right, Travis. Buddy can manage to get out the name of the show, but not much else. Monster Pod. Sadie. Jimmy's going to be able to get out the premise, but you didn't roll high enough for any spoilers. Monster Pod is a real play Monster of the Week podcast where four government-employed idiots try to save the world. Sarah. Thomason rolled high enough to finish the ad. Releases every other Friday here on So Below Media. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below.